Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. We were way over our heads in NATO. And when I went in, I looked and I said, uh, you're going to have to all pay or we're not going to protect you any longer. And I remember the head of a country stood up and said, does that mean that if Russia attacks my country, you will not be there? That's right. That's what it means. I will not protect you. I will not protect you. See, here's the thing that we've learned about Donald Trump. Even if he says something that seems outrageous, you should probably believe him. And if you believe the recent polls, it shows he could end up back in the White House after the November elections in the U.S., And here in Europe, people are worried this could all embolden Vladimir Putin. After all, you know, NATO's mutual defense commitment thing is a whole lot less scary if Uncle Sam isn't going to come help fight Russia off. So we are seeing EU leaders get way more serious about their own defense, much more than we could have imagined even just a few years ago. We will have to be ready to act, defend and support Ukraine, whatever happens. One after another, we hear European politicians declaring that Europe can and will defend Ukraine on its own. Europe will be at Ukraine's side for every single day of this war and for every single day thereafter. We are determined to make sure that Ukraine will get the military equipment they need. The real cost of a Russian victory is too high for all of us. But is there any reason to believe them? I'm Sarah Wheaton, and in this episode, we're asking whether Europe is indeed ready to go from a peace project to a military powerhouse. In a bit, my Politico colleagues will walk us through where Europe is most vulnerable. But first, a geopolitical perspective. Let's welcome Florence Gaub, director of the research division at the NATO Defense College in Rome, and a futurist, she'll explain what that means in a bit, and Ivo Dalder, former U.S. ambassador to NATO and president of the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Ivo, you are a fellow podcaster. We should say you host a podcast called The World Review with Ivo Dalder. So you're really kind of keeping up with all of the ins and outs of foreign affairs. And one thing that we're watching from afar is Congress trying to pass this mega deal. It's do or die for both parties, linking Ukraine and Israel support with a border crackdown. It's not looking good. Is the deal still possible in Congress? It doesn't look like it's going to pass Congress. We are in a really in a strange world here in which it is the Republicans uh, in the House and the Senate that insisted 
that any big supplemental funding for Ukraine and then later Israel needed to be accompanied by not only funding, but changes in policy towards the border to be able to have greater control over those who are crossing into the United States and asking for asylum. And the reality is that we now are in campaign season. And whatever the likely nominee of the Republican Party says is what happens on Capitol Hill. And he says no to the deal because he wants the chaos at the border, as he calls it, to be a political issue until the end of November when the elections are. And as long as that's the case, this one is not going to be voted on. Now, whether another bill with Ukraine and Israel 8 might come through is TBD, but I think we shouldn't count on it. And so if this bill doesn't pass, what are the practical consequences for Ukraine, but even more for Europe, which would have to pick up potentially the slack? Practical consequences for Ukraine are real because if you look at it, there is only one place in the world that has the military capacity necessary for Ukraine to both defend itself at the front with more artillery shells and other munitions and to defend the cities against air defense attack. And that is in the U.S. military. It's material that is sitting in the U.S. military that can only be transferred after congressional authorization. So it requires a vote by Congress. It isn't that it can be produced in short order. At some point, it can be produced. At some point, both in Europe and in the United States, production lines will be able to spit out new 155 millimeter artillery shells and the kind of air defense missiles that are necessary. But that's not going to happen this year, no matter what the issue is. So the problem isn't even that the Europeans will have to pick up the slack because they don't have the capacity to pick it up. So you really are stuck in 2024 with the reality that the Ukrainians are not going to have the military capacities necessary to hold the line. Now, they may still be able to hold the line in all kinds of other ways, and Russian stupidity and tactical incompetence should never be underestimated, as we've seen in the last two years. But that's a faint hope uh, to hang your uh, future on. It does mean that Europe needs to get very serious about production and capabilities and what it needs to do, because this sends a signal that the United States cannot be trusted. It cannot be relied upon. And that is a signal that is not only tied to this particular event, it's tied to our elections and the reality that if Donald Trump is president, this may become the norm rather than the exception. Thank you. Florence, before I get into my specific question for you, I wanted to ask, you know, your specialty is as a futurist. What does that mean? Well, I think a lot of people are actually futurists without realizing that they are or calling themselves that. I think it's anybody who thinks about the medium to long-term future in a structured fashion. So it's very important to stress that. It's not just about commentary or gut feeling. It's looking at trends, looking at data, playing through different scenarios. I think I would say that's a futurist. So you also find strategic thinkers that are effectively futurists, if you want to put it that way. And, you know, maybe one doesn't necessarily have to think in a super structured way to sort of see the trend that has been happening with the U.S. for a long time. Obama angered Europe when he started talking about the strategic pivot to Asia. Then we had the first Trump administration where he was somewhat hostile to NATO, um, if not outrightly. There he had this little break with Biden. But I mean, if those things didn't push Europe to take its own defense more seriously, what will and why do we seem to be a bit flat-footed at this point? I think, first of all, it's important to distinguish between is Trump actually hostile towards NATO or is he hostile towards what certain NATO member states are doing when it comes to NATO? Because I don't think he has an issue per se with an alliance that would give him 
you know, any types of benefits, but he questions whether he would get that benefit from the Europeans. He said the Europeans wouldn't defend us. He said the Europeans aren't spending enough. So I think it's important to distinguish that because it means that there are also ways that other NATO allies can actually do things to perhaps at least reduce this hostility. And one of the ways, of course, to spend more on defense. The second question is, why are we so flat-footed? You know, I'm half German, as you know, and Germany, I think, is perhaps the pillar in, in this conversation because the Germans have been particularly slow in recognizing that the world is what it is and wishful thinking is not going to replace, you know, long-term strategic defense planning. This is effectively what has happened with the Bundeswehr. And I think that has slowed several other European member states down. So this illusion post-1990 that, you know, we're all going to be friends forever. I think that's what's been holding the Europeans back. And Ukraine has been a wake-up call, but I think, yeah, perhaps Trump too would be the necessary wake-up call to do actually what is required to really defend yourself. Sarah, can I jump in because I fundamentally agree with Florence on her second point, but I fundamentally disagree with her on the first point. I don't think that Trump actually sees value in alliances. He doesn't understand the concept of working together with other countries to maximize the capacity to compete or, or get things done. He is deeply focused on winning, not leading. And winning is you do by beating the other side. And he has a tendency to look at the other side as being allies who are the ones who, are, who do trade the most with the United States with whom we rely on more than anyone else. And he doesn't see the value. He doesn't see win-win propositions in the way that alliances are built. So I do think he is deeply hostile to NATO. He is deeply hostile to bilateral alliances that we have in Asia. He withdrew troops from Germany. And all of this is on the table, including the possible withdrawal from NATO itself, although whether he does or not actually is less important than the reality that no one will be able to rely on him and the United States. If that's not an incentive for Europeans to start to invest in their own capabilities and their own defense structures, then I don't know what it is, because obviously without the United States and without European cooperation, you're relying on national capabilities that are just insufficient to deal with the threats that Europe faces. And so what does that look like, Florence? You know, should we have a European, an EU defense commissioner, try to create some sort of parallel NATO, see European countries take more control in NATO? All of these proposals have been on the table for a long time. You know, it's like the European Army, the European Defense Commissioner, you know, pooling and sharing and joint European umbrella. I mean, there's loads of ideas on the table. I think so far, even now, we still have a camp that's more or less evenly divided between those led by France, essentially, and the UK to a lesser extent, who think, well, Europeans need to be able to defend themselves with or without the United States. And then you have the other bloc, which traditionally was Germany, which for some reason, which I've never understood, thought, well, if we do our own thing, we're going to upset the Americans, which I think is actually the exact opposite. And I would say that there's still some reticence. As I said, we've got, we're moving in the right direction. Now, how it could look in practical terms, I don't think we'll have a defense commissioner. I think what I do see possible is that perhaps the high representatives dimension is expanded in that regard. That perhaps, you know, Germany starts and enters an agreement, Germany in particular, but perhaps others start working on a possible European umbrella. I think because this issue is so so divisive, we probably have to find new concepts, new words, even if at the end of the day, we're looking at the same thing. You know, you said parallel European NATO. I mean, there is a European component in NATO, so you don't need to have a parallel NATO because you have the integrated command structure. You can use all of that, even if the United States were to withdraw 
or you know, do an, a French version, withdraw dust from the military command structure, NATO as a whole would function and would be super useful for the Europeans left behind. So I don't think you necessarily have to come up with something else, but you have to make it work without the Americans. And that's what Ivo was just saying. The big question is, would we still be capable of credible deterrence, especially to Russia, of course, without the Americans? And that is the elephant in the room because the answer to that is not super clear. I think Florence is exactly right. Yes, you do want to think about how do you bring a more strategic coherence at a European level. It probably makes sense to do that within an EU-like structure, if not the EU itself. And the high representative representing more of a sort of strategic national security outlook and not just a defense piece is probably the right place. But, and this is a really important but, and we need to start thinking about it a lot more. What does NATO look like without American leadership or indeed without the presence? If in the worst case, the United States were to decide under Article 13 to withdraw from the treaty, what does NATO offer Europe in terms of defense? Well, one thing it offers over the EU is an existing structure, processes, procedures, programs that already work. The other thing it offers is membership of countries that are pretty darn critical that are not members of the EU, starting with the UK, but including Norway, a very important country for the defense of Europe, given its coastline and its presence up in the high north, and Canada, a transatlantic ally with real interests in, again, in the high north and the Arctic, all important members. And so there is, in part of the discussion, is sort of how does the EU do this? No, the question becomes, how do we do, how do you have a post-American or post-American-led, one or the other, NATO, be effective in helping Europe to ensure its security, including by dealing with Ukraine, not only what's happening in the, you know, on the ground, but essentially membership in the future. And that's a different debate than I think we've had for a very long time. The EU versus NATO debate is an old debate, but the Europeanization of NATO is something that's new and very necessary. You forgot to mention Turkey, which I think is also yes, a very interesting, you. because also with regards to Russia, you know, Turkey's role has been a bit of a bridge country, I think from a military point of view, super interesting. The other thing is that what you just mentioned also, you know, the whole structure, people tend to think of defense. It's funny, it's either too logistic or not logistic enough. The whole structure, the underbelly. Well, okay, if we were to go to war, how does it actually work? Like, which numbers do we call? Are these equipments interoperable and so forth? All of that remains in NATO without the Americans. So that's, I would say, if you want to bridge the gap between, you know, let's say the scenario United States withdraw and then we remain vulnerable. You have no other option because the EU cannot build these structures as fast, well, as is necessary. But then, and this is actually what Iwa also just said, the bigger question is, can the EU have a strategic posture, the mental posture to think of itself as something that can be aggressive when necessary? Because I think that's what always in the European debate was the big obstacle. Can the EU think of itself as a more aggressive beast? Can it defend itself, you know, with violent means? Can it credibly project to Russia and other actors that, yeah, if you push us, we're going to push back. And I think because of the EU's inherently normative thinking, you know, the EU essentially thinks if everybody was like us, the world would be a better place because it's a, it's a peace project. Can a peace project actually become also a defensive project? I think that's the less tangible question that I think needs to be asked. And as I said, I think I see it emerging, you know, France being one, one critical country here, but uh, we're not there yet. 
And are there any European politicians right now who you think are articulating this argument in a way that could actually speak to citizens or voters who might need to give up social benefits or, you know, send their their children to the military in order to support these ideas? Sorry, Ivo, if I jump in here as, as a token European, but again, it depends from country to country. I would say in France, you have a strategic culture that's much more ready for this. But then you, you look at Germany again. I think Germany and the Netherlands, I saw a, a survey that asked, would you be willing to defend your country with violent means if necessary? And I think the Netherlands response quote was the lowest, was 13%, and Germany was 18%. So this was before the Ukraine war. It's probably gone up since, but let's say that these two countries, and then perhaps you have some others that are definitely not ready to bite the bullet. And, you know, in Germany, the debate about bringing back military service is also hampered. Well, it's not just about logistics. You need to have the barracks, you need to have the funds, et cetera, et cetera. But you also have to change the constitution because you have to make it open to women. So that in itself, I think, shows that at least for the Germans, that willingness is not there. They're mentally not there Different story for the Poles, definitely different story for the Finns. As a born and raised Dutchman, seeing my former countrymen, since I'm no longer Dutch, having chosen to become an American, at least for now, seeing them uh, be as pacifist as they were, that's a long tradition, unfortunately, that went into World War II. So yeah, I don't see anyone, although I, actually the current Dutch prime minister, Mark Rutte, can think strategically better than, than most. I do think that there are, of course, leaders in Europe who have the strategic capacity to do this when forced to think about it. And we might not you know, know them right now, but they may come and surprise us in the future. I mean, you do have people like Donald Tusk. You do have, I don't know who's going to be president in Finland, but whoever, one of the two candidates are, are both highly capable strategic thinkers. You do have Macron and the French culture that I think Florence rightly pointed out. In some ways, Georgia Maloney has, has surprised all of us with being more strategic and more collaborative than people were uh, hoping. And as they say, the mother of invention is to become strategic because there is no alternative. So there's not a reason to think that Europe can't do it. It's just it's not going to happen until it happens because of the necessity. The Zeitenbende, Olaf Scholz's speech, would never have been able to give that speech but for the fact that Putin invaded Ukraine. So it was the shock of something that he was told was going to happen over and over again, didn't believe and then did happen, that led to a strategic transformation. And so I think the shock of Donald Trump being elected would bring forth the kind of leadership that Europe needs. And and the most important strategic culture, yes, it is a peace culture, but it is a culture that says avoiding war, which is where the peace culture comes from, is paramount. And the way we avoid war is collaboration. And so I'm an optimist when it comes to European collaboration on these issues. I'm an optimist, and I think we should have pushed it a long time ago. I think it would have been in America's interest to have strong European defense industry, strong European strategic culture. A stronger Europe is what we want. Our problem is a weak Europe, not a strong Europe. And we've misplayed it for a long time. I would go further. If you look at the response to Ukraine and the commitment that Europe continues to make to this day to Ukraine, they're not the weak tent in the pole when it comes to the West. Turns out it's Uncle Sam, and particularly the U.S. Congress and a political system that we have in the U.S., where a minority can clearly undermine the strategic potential of a country. Just to wrap things up and put kind of a fine and maybe potentially depressing or scary point on it, you know, everything that we're talking about would take years probably to build up. So if the U.S. does disengage or refuse to protect Europe, are people who live on the continent just sitting ducks at this point? Well, it's a tricky question because... We have to assume that this is exactly the question that many Russians are asking themselves and their leadership. 
the Europeans have strong and capable military forces as a collective. They have experience together in Afghanistan, but they're also challenged, especially because, you know, NATO is, as Ivo said earlier, the United States contribution to NATO from a financial point of view, from an equipment point of view, from a, from a personal point of view is, is huge. Could they defend themselves? It depends on the scenario. It depends also on how allied the Europeans would be amongst themselves. So it's not just about the Americans, it's also about themselves. But yes, my concern is that we have left a huge vulnerability open and somebody could take advantage of it. The question is, at what cost for them? What is their assessment on our capability to rally and, and stick together? Because if we do stick together, I think we have a, a really, really good chance. But if we don't, and this is, of course, something that a Russian disinformation plays on us to divide us, well, then I think, yeah, we have a real issue. All right. Well, our next panel will focus on um, some reporters who've been talking to people who've been uh, gaming out these scenarios. So you really helped set the stage for that. Ivo, Florence, thanks so much. My pleasure. Thanks. After the break, we'll have a more down-to-earth look at what it would take for Europe to effectively beef up its defenses in case it can no longer count on Washington. Stay with us. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. So now I'm joined by my colleagues and in-house defense experts, Laura Kayali, our defense correspondent in Paris, and Jan Chinsky, defense editor in Warsaw. Laura, we just had a panel discussion right before that was actually pretty pessimistic about Europe's uh, safety, really, if the U.S. decides that it doesn't really want to help with defense. And I know that you have been talking to, you know, military planners and officials about what they think is going to happen. And, and where do they see the biggest vulnerabilities if, say, Putin were to decide to make a move? Well, obviously, because of geography, the main vulnerabilities are in the Baltics, Estonia, Lithuania, and, and Latvia. And the country that came up the most during our conversations was Estonia. We had one former U.S. ambassador to Poland who told us literally, like, Putin would invade eastern Estonia if he thought he could get away with it. So the question is, will he think he can get away with it? And so then what would happen next? Do they have a sense of... If the U.S. really signals that it's not going to engage, would Article 5, which is this idea that, you know, if one member of NATO is attacked and then everybody responds, would that still be invoked? Or would the rest of the NATO members also be like, eh, I don't know if I can commit to this anymore? What's interesting is that we're focusing a lot of the U.S., but there's also a question about European countries. And there was one analysis that, that didn't make it into the story by Michel Goya, a former French colonel, 
who said that at first European countries need to decide because, as he said, we shouldn't find out at the last minute that Hungary is not going to head. Because we're seeing now with the Ukraine aid debate that Hungary is a sticking point and still has contacts with Vladimir Putin. So this is also a question for Europeans among themselves. You mentioned the Article 5. That's the crucial test because nobody that we talk to thinks that Russia plans to invade and that the tanks will roll through Berlin and Paris and end up in London. That's just not going to happen. It's obviously impossible looking at what they're doing in Ukraine. Russia doesn't have that kind of a goal. It doesn't have that kind of an ability at all. The scenario that people paint as a potential danger is that Russia doesn't even have to invade a whole Baltic country. It can seize part of Eastern Estonia, as we had in our scenario. It could seize part of that gap between um, Belarus and the Kaliningrad, that little Russian exclave that's linked by uh, Poland and Lithuania. And basically, you have to seize some NATO territory, hold it, and see what NATO does. And if you put the Russian nuclear umbrella over it, and then nothing happens because the French and the Brits decide that they are not going to risk nuclear war for forests in eastern Estonia, the Americans are not present. And then by simply doing that, the Russians collapse NATO. They show that the whole Article 5 promise is worthless. NATO doesn't exist as a, as a security architecture. Every country's on its own. And that's their goal. And so their goal is not to necessarily physically invade people. It's to destroy European unity and to leave each country on its own where they have to build their own relationship with Russia and Russia as a big player can dominate its old empire in Eastern Europe again. Okay, well, let's say let's say on a practical level, there's sort of a political decision to not let what you just described happen. And so uh, Europeans say, look, we need to get our act together to defend ourselves, even if the U.S. Uh, steps out of the picture. What might that look like? Are we going to have a European defense commissioner? Are European countries going to start buying weapons together? The main challenge is definitely defense production because Russia has entered what is called a war economy, which means that civilian industries are used for the benefit of defense and for the war effort. And obviously, the European Union is not per se at war. So that didn't happen. And this is the challenge that was mentioned by a lot of experts that we talked to, because this is also what builds deterrence. And if Russia sees that the EU has loads of tanks, loads of jets, loads of ammunition, then it's a bigger risk to even try. So this is one of the main challenges, and it's that's one of the challenges that uh, Thierry Breton, who's the Internal Market and Defense Commissioner, has flagged and says that Europe would need a 100 billion cash pot to boost defense production. That also, in his mind, means that European countries should pool demand because like now each country is buying like on its own and that's not really efficient. And also on the supply side, every company is running after like the same raw materials, etc. So that's also not efficient. So that also raises the question of more European integration, which is a whole other debate. And we don't want to overwhelm people with numbers, but have there been thinkers who've been kind of crunching the number as and saying like, okay, we need to spend this much more or take money away from this thing in order to shift to this more war economy posture? Where just this week, European Council President Charles Michel uh, said that he expects 600 billion euros invested in defense in the next uh, 10 years. There was overall an 8% increase uh, this year, average for all EU countries. 
and that if if that's the trend that continues, that's what he expects. But obviously, not all EU countries are uh, spending 2% of GDP, which is the NATO pledge. Some of them are expected to do so in 2024, especially Baltic countries. But for example, France, which is supposed to be a major military power, will not reach 2% of GDP before 2026 or seven. Yeah, and what's your sense of what the resistance from many countries, especially maybe Western European countries, has been to to taking a more aggressive posture? And I mean, you're you're zooming in from Warsaw right now, which is a country where people maybe are a little more invested in recognizing the need to defend themselves. What would it take to kind of spread this attitude across the continent? There's a really interesting way of looking at it right now, which is the uh, both defense budgets as a percent of uh, GDP, as Laura was saying, and also the amount of military aid that these countries are sending to Ukraine. And the closer you are to Ukraine and Russia, the higher the totals. And so you've got the Baltic countries, Poland, Romania, Germany, especially Germany is by far the largest supplier in Europe. And then as you start to go south and west, the numbers really fall off. Italy, France is pretty low, although the French don't like that pointed out to them. Spain, Portugal. Portugal is about as far away as you can get from Russia. They don't see any existential threat at all. So it's much more difficult to motivate that increased spend politically because there's only so much money in a budget. So if you're starting to boost defense spending, sending much more equipment to Kiev, you have less money for things like green priorities for combating climate change, which are also really important political priorities. So governments have to do that. And it's easier to explain in Poland, which is now going to be spending just over 4% of GDP on defense, which is the second highest in NATO after the United States. It's easy to explain it here in Portugal or in other countries that are further from the action, much less easy to do that. Another idea that we discussed in our previous panel is, you know, even if Trump is is elected, it's not necessarily a fait accompli that uh, that he'll blow Nate off. Maybe he could be persuaded politically that it's in the U.S. interest or in his interest to help with European defense. Uh, he used to get along quite well with the Polish government. It's a different government now. But I mean, do you see any sense that people are trying to think of ways to persuade him? Yeah, there's like you can see countries and European arms makers are trying to sew up as many cooperation and joint venture deals as possible with American defense companies to insulate themselves from a from a potential Trump pullout. But Trump has clearly said in the past that he would not come to Europe's defense. He said that when he was president. He said that to European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen. And so there's legitimate reason to worry about Trump's commitment to NATO. He's grumbled about it a lot in the past. And you can sort of see the impact of an unstable American political structure on what's happening now in Ukraine. Ukraine is a is an American ally and is not getting the money and arms that the Americans promised because of internal political difficulties. So would Americans die for Eastern Estonia? Would they risk nuclear war for Eastern Estonia? It becomes increasingly doubtful. So then the whole deterrence idea starts to collapse. But let me just turn that question around. Even if Biden is reelected, there's a conversation in Europe that production ramp up and spending should continue. Like it's not only if Trump gets elected, there's increasingly an awareness that Europe cannot rely on the US, whoever the president is. Great. I think that's a great note to end on. So um, I'll let you I'll let you both get back to work. Laura, Jan, thanks so much. Okay, that's it for this week. Make sure you follow EU Confidential wherever you listen to podcasts. Rate us if you haven't already. 
and leave a comment or write to us at podcast at politico.eu. I'm Sarah Wheaton. Thanks to our executive producer for audio, Christina Gonzalez, and Diana Sturris, our senior audio producer in Brussels. See you next week. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.